Welcome to the Sunday Celebrations podcast. Each week, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives, we chat to people who have each played their part in shaping life in Australia. And this week, we're joined by someone who I I guess I will refer to as a legend of the television news industry in Australia and Victoria, but it's a title I don't think he would like to wear all that well because he's a very humble man. From Channel 7 News, Peter Mitchell. Hello and welcome to Sunday Celebrations. Thank you very much indeed, Grant. It's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, yes, I'm not in- entirely happy with being called that because uh, all I do is do my job. But um, yeah, thanks anyway. You've been doing your job in, in one way, shape or form for 40 years. And I feel, given I'm involved in media, uh, in the radio side of things, have a little bit of an understanding of how bumpy the ride can be in the media game. To go through 40 years, I feel like I need to say congratulations for, for, <laughs> for getting through 40 years and more to come, of course. But it's been, it's been a long time, hasn't it? 40-odd years. Yes, it is, it is astonishing to me, Grant, to, to look back on that and think, well, uh, here I am at the, uh, at the near, nearing the end of, all, of riding that wave. It has been absolutely incredible, but I have been extraordinarily lucky uh, that I've only ever worked in two places. I was a cadet journalist at Channel 9, straight mm. out of school. That's how I got the job. And, and back then, they were as rare as hen's teeth. I, I was very lucky to get the job. And then Channel 7 called me up after about 10 years and said, how would you like to read our weekend news? And so I went from Richmond to South Melbourne, and now I'm working Docklands, of course, but I've only ever worked for two bosses, it's quite extraordinary that uh, people, when people hear that. Well, let's talk about that first job. I mean, you passed your what would have been your HSC uh, at that stage on the Mornington Peninsula. I think it was 1977, if I'm right. And literally less than a month later, you were in that news cadetship. How did that actually transpire? Was, was it something that you just applied for or was it an offer or how did, how did that come about so quickly after school? Well, it was it was in my year 12, going through my, my VCE year and you know, you, everyone's thoughts turn to what they're going to do after year 12. And yeah. I had no idea, but my parents said to me, look, you, you enjoy English and working with words. Why don't you try to become a journalist and see how that goes? Mm. So I, I basically applied everywhere. This is before I even sat the end of year exams. So I applied everywhere. I got a, two responses, one from the Herald newspaper and one from Channel 9. And I went for interviews but before sitting exams again. And the, um, the Channel 9 boss was more interested in the little book that I brought with me, which was my project during the year. I did pictures and, and spiels about the players in, the, in my school's football team. <laughs> and he, he wanted to read that, and he flicked through that and said, did you do these pictures yourself? I said, yes. And uh, it sort of stemmed on from there. And he, I went back for another interview, and then at the end of that, he said, Look, right, I'll, I'll put you on two weeks' trial and see how you go at the end of that. So I had a two-week trial. It was up to me what I did with that. Mm. And at the end of the two weeks, he said, right, I'll put you on as a cadet. And again, this is before the exam results had come out. So I'd sat the exams and I got the job without the VCE qualification. So trying to figure that out, I I couldn't get my head around it. I I just knew I was in a very lucky place. Yeah, because I remember back those days, The uh, and it's very different to the way it is now, but the results didn't come out until, what, mid-January or something. So we had had that, because they came in the post, of course, um, we had to wait sort of, what, four or five or six weeks or or even potentially more. I remember sitting by the post box waiting for those (laughs) results, but by that stage, you're already working in the media game. Did you you remember remember that day of actually standing there waiting by the mailbox for your for your result to come, well, you probably would have been at work. 
No, I, I actually I had been working uh, on shift work then, so I was working weekends, and I had that day off. Uh, but I, I I was waiting by the post box, of course. But the um, and as soon as the postman delivered it, I ripped it open and found out that I'd scraped through by the skin of my teeth, and it really didn't matter. So let's fast forward through 1983. Was of course the America's Cup, and legendary sports presenter Arthur Higgins, an absolute legend was sent to the US to cover the America's Cup and you were sort of handed the reins or handed the opportunity to present sport alongside another uh, legend, I guess, uh, in Brian Naylor. Um, yes. Yeah, that must have been, for a start, it must have been an absolute buzz at the time to be able to be working with and alongside some of these iconic names in, in news in Melbourne. Well, again, Grant, I had to pinch myself because mm. it, it, this this opportunity arose seemingly out of nothing. Like Arthur was sent to Newport, Rhode Island, as you mentioned, and it was such a big story at the time. Uh, and because the weekend sports presenter had been bumped up to fill in for Arthur, mm. um, he had to get a day off in there somewhere. So the boss said to me, "Would you be? Would you like to present the sport on the Friday night, just for the one night a week?" And I couldn't believe my luck. I said, oh, yes, I'd love to. I'd love to do it. And there I was sitting next to Brian Naylor. Kevin Arnett was doing the weather. Mm. And all I had to do was sit back and observe these two go about their work in such a professional way. And Brian threw to me and I presented the sport and I came back upstairs after that bulletin and people in the newsroom gave me a round of applause. And I thought, this is unbelievable. You know, I was so, so fortunate. And of course, that led to a, a regular sports presenting gig and and also Channel 7 contacting me to say, we'd like you to be a weekend newsreader. It's something that I'd never even thought about doing, becoming a newsreader. But I, I said yes to that, just thinking I, I may as well give it a shot. Who knows if I'll ever get another opportunity to do this. Tell me about Brian Naylor, the man. I mean, you, you worked alongside him. And for someone growing up in Melbourne, a bit like you are now, um, he was in our lounge rooms every, every weeknight. Exactly, and he was a legend at Channel 7 and then he ended up going over to Channel 9 and, and became the dominant newsreader in Melbourne for yeah. close to two decades. And just to sit next to Brian and, and his mannerisms, he uh, he regularly came into work at 9 with his wife, Moi Ray, uh, alongside him. And she'd go and sit in, in his uh, office and, and his dressing room and, and knit. Believe it or not, she would knit clothes uh, while Brian was doing the bulletin. <laughs> Um, and then, and then after the news, they'd walk down together. Uh, it's just a perfect couple. Off they'd go back home, and mm. they were just so close to each other. And it was certainly tragic the way that they they were both taken uh, in the in the Black Saturday bushfires. But uh, I don't want to bring up a downer because Brian was the ultimate professional, mm. uh, and I just had to sit back and observe the way he went about things. He he never was never flustered. Never heard. I never heard him utter a swear word. He was just the perfect manner for for what he was doing. Beating, being a, a trusted, a gentle, authoritative newsreader sitting there, and you could, you know, you just had to watch him to to learn how to do it. Well, and you probably blush when I say this, but you have ended up exactly the same. And I think <laughs> the influences, and it's a it's an overused word, the whole mentor thing, but the influences we have in our lives, they certainly play a massive part in the outcome of what we become. And uh, do, do you think that sort of time spent with Brian was a bit of a sliding doors moment for you at the time with your career? And because and, you have ended up in that, that very trusted uh, voice position. 
Yes, that's that's uh, very kind of you, Grant. But I, I certainly, as I mentioned, when I was sitting next to Brian, I never thought that I would be in one day in in his position, and mm. certainly filling a role that he once filled at Channel Seven. It was, uh, but when when I got the job, I just looked back to how he went about it, and I, I remember saying him saying to me that so many people when they sit down in front of the camera, uh, the nerves take over and it's they just can't get the words out properly because they're so nervous he said mm. the way i got the way i did that was i just pretended that that camera over there looking at me was my best mate and i was just telling him or her the the, the news of the day um he also said to me that he took great pride in being the person the mouthpiece that sort of put the icing on the cake from from all the hard work done by the reporters during mm. the day and and I feel that very keenly today that it's my job not to make any mistakes and to do credit to their work because they're the ones who've been up all night or in the early hours of the morning filing stories for all different sorts of uh, deadlines all during the day. And I, I'm the one who's doing the 6 p.m. news and I certainly don't want to muck it up for them because of all the work they've done during the day. And if you don't mind me asking, on, on that whole Black Saturday time, you were obviously very close to Brian and you were reporting on the fires at the time. How, how do you, I guess, process that and handle that when you are having to report on something so close to you with, with Brian passing and his wife passing? Yeah, I've, that's that's permanently etched into my brain, Grant. I will never forget that moment because uh, I, my boss rang me up. I was working Monday to Friday then, but my boss rang me up on the Saturday of the fires and said, look, we, we're going to be needing your help tomorrow. And I said, sure, whatever you, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. So they sent me to Whittlesea, the staging ground there where all the people were coming down from King Lake, all these um, families and, you know, children just looking like zombies. They'd lost their homes. They'd mm. lost all their possessions. Some, some had lost their schools. And of course, some of them had lost their best friends in the fires. And we, we were there and a man came over to me and said, oh, it's tragic about Brian and Moiree. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, the nailers have been killed. And I said, are you sure about that? And he said, yes, I'm positive. Now, this is just a stranger who came up to me, so I, I couldn't report what he was saying to me because there was no way of confirming that. It was yeah. it was unconfirmed at that stage. So I didn't go with that information on, on Seven News that night. But... Boy, it was difficult to go on if knowing that if that's the case, um, what an awful, awful story. Mm. And I know that the Nailers became a focus of the, the Black Saturday tragedy, but uh, there were so many other lives lost as well uh, on that on that uh, fateful day. So that's obviously one you know tragic incident, and, and unfortunately, news quite often is about tragedy. Um, you know, it, it is a, we have positive news stories, but, you know, we do have a lot of tragic ones as well. Is there something, um, you know, it may be Black Saturday, but is there something that really sticks out as being, you know, something that I, I guess you were, you had, you feel honoured to be a part of, the announcement of, and, and the way that you handled it? Well, there, there, there are so many big stories that stand out. I mean, yeah. and, and, early doors we were told whenever you're working in the news business to expect the unexpected because you just don't know what's around the corner who could have seen that this pandemic was coming yes. you know it's it's the biggest story that i've ever covered and it's happened in the last two years you know mm. it, it's it's phenomenal so um and i think any you're right uh 
television news these days, well, it always has been, is it can be a very confronting, uh, can be a very confronting business, and the stories that go to air can be very, very hard to deal with. But uh, there is counselling around nowadays for people, of course, but that was that was never part of it. But uh, I remember as a cadet at Channel Nine, uh, we just happened to be sent down to. Lang Lang uh, in Victoria, mm. where the Channel 7 news helicopter had crashed. Now, I was at Channel 9 at the time. We happened to be the nearest crew, so they called us and said, you need to get to Lang Lang. So we got there, and what I saw that day will never leave my mind either because um, it was the wreck of the chopper and the charred remains of the four people on board, including the pilot and the Channel 7 uh, crew who I'd only worked at the same media conference with them the week before. Wow. And we were, you know, you, they can say that you're competitive on the road and everyone's uh, out to get the best angle for the story, but you, you're still very friendly and familiar with your opposition. You know, you, you know that they're just trying to do the same thing you are. And yeah, I'd just seen that the, the people on board that chopper the, the week before and they're there, Burnt out remains were in the middle of a paddock where the pilot had lost control and crashed the chopper. Uh, that that's the sort of thing that you that you have to deal with. And um, you know, as I say, there was no counselling back then. You just had to get on with it and uh, brush yourself off. And and uh, the next day's news came around. And that's why this twenty four seven news cycle is can be so confronting at times. Mm. But but again, it's the adrenaline that you get from breaking news. And stories that people are gen- genuinely interested in. I, I must admit, I found out during the pandemic that I'm an essential worker. <laughs> I was allowed through roadblocks, and I had my pass to get through because uh, people still wanted to watch the news. And authorities said that people need to know what's going on with this pandemic. So we had more viewers watching us for the last couple of years than we had in the years previous because of the information they were keen to get. Because everyone wanted to know what was happening next with lockdown and restrictions and everything else. You must sit there some nights when you're reading, whether it be the tragedy of Princess Diana passing or 9-11 or now, of course, with the pandemic and think that you're never going to read something quite as dramatic or quite as uh, significant as this ever again. But then it happens, something else happens that kind of, you know, as you said, how are we going to, how could you possibly have predicted this whole last 18 months, two years of pandemic? But, there, but there, yeah. there's always something, isn't there? Because you said that the news cycle rolls on and there just things always happen. That's right. And it, it's it's astonishing how that occurs. And as you say, when, when Princess Diana was killed and I was working that weekend, I remember everyone in the newsroom just said, oh, my God, can you believe this? This is the biggest story that's ever happened in our lives and probably will be. Uh, and, and then along comes September the 11th. Yeah. Um, which triggered the 20-year war on terror where our troops are only just leaving Afghanistan now. Can you believe that? Almost two, you know, almost two decades later. And, and, um, and then, of course, Black Saturday came along. Uh, and then now the pandemic. So, yeah, you, you, we've learned not to judge too early on, on what's happening, but just the day-to-day business, how, how stories can break. Um, just last Friday, for example, with the Tim Payne story, yeah. um, how that just went like wildfire around social media, and you know, this, this is how it works these days. It's it's just 
there's this new media, the social media, it's it's created a whole new business. Well, technology has played such a huge role in news gathering now, that and probably a bigger than a bigger role than it's ever played. As far as as you said, anyone with a you know social media account would describe themselves as a reporter or a journalist. And I'm doing the inverted brackets with my fingers here. You can't see it, but I'm doing that sort of, you know, that thing we do. But um, is this the greatest change that you've seen in news gathering um, over the 40 years that you've been involved in it, this this sort of social media thing now? that, that um, And I guess the second part of that is how, how much impact has that had on what we would describe as traditional journalism and that's, that art and that skill of journalism? Yes, well, that's that's a very good point you make there, Grant, because the technological advances that I've seen in the time I've been working, you just cannot compare what was going on when I first started to what's happening now because mm. um, there were stories you couldn't cover after 3 o'clock in the afternoon because the film couldn't be processed in time to, to get it to air that night on the news. Uh, then then along came video cameras and it made it a lot easier to, to cross live, to do live crosses you know, via the... The satellite technology and then once we hit the digital era and suddenly every citizen is walking around with a camera in their hands mm. um, and we've got security cameras everywhere so you you get uh, security camera footage from every conceivable source that's uh, you know just look for ex- the example of catching Jill Mars killer yeah uh, and and the way that police just the first thing they went for was the security cameras. This is the way we'll find this guy. And that's how they got him. So, you know, that's how he was identified. So, it, but the, yeah, the, the social media side of it is um, incredible because once upon a time, uh, people were loath to, you know, if they wanted to complain, they either had to ring up or, or write or send in a letter. Yes. Now, if people want to complain, if the, there's their the keyboard right in front of them mm. and they can just pile on. <laughs> so, so the <laughs> and they Channel, do. <laughs> the, uh, oh, the poor Channel Seven guy who who, who um, conceded to Adele that he hadn't listened to her, her album yes. as he was sent halfway around the world to interview her. Uh, absolutely copped a pounding on yeah. social media, and and you know <laughs> that's just what happens now. And it's happening so quickly. I mean, if you think back, I remember um, hearing a story about the JFK assassination. You know that, and it was what sixty three. So there's how many years? Nearly sixty years, I guess. But it took two or three or more days for the footage to arrive in Australia because it had to be packaged up, put on a plane, sent over, blah, blah, blah. And it's just so, I know it's an obvious statement, but it's so ridiculously different now that we can see things play out in real time as opposed to what happened in you know, 1963. That's exactly right. And that you've, you've nailed that story because um, it, they did have to put the canister of film on yeah. the plane and there was someone waiting at Essendon Airport to collect it and take it back to the station and have a look at the footage for a start. No one had seen it in Australia before. And mm. here we here we had the president being shot in the street. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, we, we didn't see it until three days later. But as you say, it's a, you can't compare them uh, to what's going on now. Can you quite, and this is a big question, but can you describe the energy in the newsroom when things unfold? I mean, it's not, we don't celebrate things as they happen because quite often they're tragic, but... Is energy the right word? There is a there is a thing, isn't there, when when stories are unfolding? It's adrenaline. You mentioned that earlier, but can you describe what it's like in the newsroom? Well, if if it's something uh, that everyone knows about, like it's 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 widespread, like a, a famous, and this happens all the time. Famous, one of the 
the the maxims of our business is that famous people die, mm. and if it's a big name who's passed away, you know that that filters around very very quickly, and everyone knows about it. It's a different thing if you've got an exclusive story that only Channel Seven knows about. And so you're keeping it in-house so no one else knows whether it's a, a, a breaking AFL story or whatever it is. Uh, there's t- tremendous excitement within the newsroom and, and the, that's when the adrenaline kicks in and that's when um, true leaders step up and show. We, they make their decisions clearly on what we're going to do and where we're going to do it. Okay, you're packaging this story. I want you to go and do a live cross here and you'll be taking this crew with you, and it's it's all very rational and well planned out. Mm. And then when it when you go to air at night, it shows because the organisational skills have kicked in, and everyone's done their job properly. Um, and and that's w- when the real t- team bonding happens. So you look back with pride, and and that that happens a lot, especially with um, younger reporters who've been in the business a short space of time, but you can see that they're improving mm. all the time with their delivery and their their voice is getting stronger and more confident. And th- and that always gives you pride too, to see them flourishing and, and, be, and really fitting in and becoming part of a, the team. I suppose it's the same with any sort of team experience, especially in sport where you, the team is successful because you're all acting as a team. And you mentioned team because I know when you on your, you know, nightly news throw to a reporter in, let's say Brunswick, for example, there is a massive machine behind that. You're, we're looking at one person on camera, but there's a whole machine not only on site behind that person, but then when it comes back to the studio and, and everything that goes around, it's a, it's, a, it's a big operation, isn't it? Bigger than we probably uh, think at times. Yeah, it's, we've got so many different departments all, all rowing in the same direction yeah. and all, all have to be rowing in the same direction. We've got our people in the control room pressing all the buttons to make sure everything works and the, the cameras are pointing the right way. And, and of course, you know, there's the on-the-road element where people are really... And, and this is where it can get quite tough for reporters out on the road these days just with the, um, you know, the QAnon protests and all yeah. these sorts of, you know, exa- examples of where, where reporters really put themselves in, in danger. Mm. Uh, they do that a lot more often these days than they used to. Um, but, yeah, as far as the team goes, we've got graphic artists, we've got all sorts of people who, whose job it is to make the news look good. Mm. So it's not about the, the audio, it's about what you see on the screen and the, the graphics and the pictures and editing um, you know, the, there's a news library that has to dig out and go back to, to the archive to get all the old footage out. Uh, it, it's it's never-ending, really. Uh, there's a helicopter pilot whose job yeah. it is to keep everyone safe and get aerial pictures. Cameramen are now using drones a lot more than they ever did just to get a, a view from above. Mm. It, it's, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a big team. Before we go, I want to just talk uh, very quickly about our sense of community. Um, your mum and dad were really actively involved in, in that sort of Mornington Peninsula of Frankston area. Dad was even the mayor of Frankston for a period. And it seems to have passed into yourself. You, you are someone that seems very proud about living on the Mornington Peninsula. How, how is that sense of community for you and your family, I guess, with the you know five kids and now grandkids? Um, that sense of community is still very important to you? It's That's very observant of your grant because just the other day I was looking at a photo of my dad at the same age I am now mm-hmm. and um, he had been mayor of Frankston and I thought um, there he is standing there with his suit and tie on pretty much what I do 
uh, you know, he was talking to people, I'm talking to people. Uh, and though it, the two jobs are completely different, there is a similarity there in, in that we are, um, you know, um, very community-minded. Mm. And, and I, I am that now. As I say, I take a great pride in the fact that people take note of the news and they, they are interested. Mm. Uh, and, and I'm proud that I, I come from Frankston and that's where my parents settled after they were married. And they went there like a lot of um, par- parents at the time did for this new growing area, mm. thinking that we're doing the right thing in the post-war baby boom. Uh, we're going to give our kids the best possible start they can have, something that we didn't always get. And uh, I remember going to school in Frankston with a lot of migrants from, but you know, it was the it was the disgraceful white Australia policy, of course. But mm. they were they were all um, Dutch kids and and English, uh, Irish, uh, Italians, Greeks, uh, and it was it was a little sort of melting pot starting off in Frankston. So mm. I've never forgotten that, and I always thought it was a fantastic place to grow up. It was like. <laughs> They called it a seaside resort back then. It was just by the bay and, uh, you know, um, it was fantastic. I love it. In 2010, you received the Hall of Fame inductee for the city of Frankston. That must have been a proud moment for you getting that at the time. Yes, yeah, enormously so. Uh, that, that came completely out of the blue, but someone had nominated me knowing that I was Jeff Mitchell's son and, um, you know, a resident of Frankston and, and proud to be so. Mm. And I've never forgotten that. And when they said, we'd love you to be in our Hall of Fame. I thought, oh, you know, I was completely knocked out and very, very proud. Uh, but then I looked at the list of other inductees and I just couldn't believe it. There's Dame Elizabeth Murdoch and, and De- Debbie Flintoff King and, and Johnny Famishon and, you know, mm. Mel Walden. He lived in Frankston for a time. He did, and, yeah. And, and the, the list goes on. It was, and it was extraordinary. And I, I was, uh, I, you know, I had my family there with me and they were all, uh, knocked out that um, I was receiving this honour. So, uh, you know, I, I, my bond will forever be with, with Frankston and the Mornington Peninsula. And I reckon I've covered every square centimetre of the Mornington Peninsula in some way. I've been about down about every road uh, in some capacity, either picking up kids from parties or going to play, going off to play golf or whatever. Now, I think I've played just about every golf course on the peninsula. Um, it's just a wonderful place, as, as everybody knows. It's it's no secret anymore. The secret has got out, and you can just tell that every summer. <laughs> you can indeed. Final question, how are the pies going to go next year? Oh, well, um, I sort of sensed, Grant, that uh, 2021 we were going to hit a submerged log just because of the um, the problems we had with the trade and, and the draft uh, last year. But... Um, poor old Bucks had to go, and yeah. in the end, he went. Um, new coach Craig McRae. Uh, I know uh, young Dakes was. Uh, yeah, yesterday. Got, yeah, yeah. He was he was drafted. So um, looking forward to seeing him play. Uh, we get Darcy Moore back. Who knows? Uh, I think the new guy will go well. The new coach Craig McRae, and I think uh, we'll have a better season than last year. That's for sure. We we, we finished second bottom in 2021. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm an old Saints man, so I'm, I'm used to um, I'm used to dreaming and hoping. Uh, my daughter my daughter is a Mads and Kilda supporter, and I've, I just pray and hope that one day they win the flag for those mm. long-suffering Saints fans. And one day. Peter Mitchell, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Grant, it's been a delight. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed every minute of it. 
The Sunday Celebrations radio show airs on Easy Music 3MP in Melbourne every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock and across the ACE radio network throughout regional Victoria and southern New South Wales every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. With thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives, we'll be back with another great guest next week. Until then, I'm your host, Grant Johnston. Thanks for listening. Thank you.